This is the harmony of the universe, that love unites the will to create with understanding of that creation. Understand thou thine own will. Love and let love. Rejoice in every shape of love, and get thy rapture and thy nourishment thereof. That's Alistair Curley. Hello and welcome to Lexicult, a podcast where we gleefully taunt the mundane, butcher the Latin and most other languages, and we also discuss a variety of occult topics. I'm Luxa, and if you are hearing this, then this show, and magic for that matter, is for you, if you want it. Uh, there are a lot of different ways to be more free, and this can be one of them. As always, I don't speak for anybody but myself, and others can, will, and should disagree sometimes. How would we ever learn anything if we all agreed all the time? And like anybody should be, I am willing to revise my opinions based on new evidence. So today, I am stoked to have a special guest, Douglas Bachelor, the mysterious magician and bibliophile who hosts the What Magic Is This podcast. This was a really fun interview. We talk about everything from Discordianism, time loops, history of the occult, the magic and worldview of the ancient Egyptians, uh, dreaming, expressing oneself authentically, all kinds of stuff. Uh, first things first, though, let me hook it up with a couple definitions from Oxford. Okay, so atavistic is an adjective relating to or characterized by reversion to something ancient or ancestral. The dictionary gives the example of an atavistic fear, like a primal fear or something. This word comes up in the study of biology too. In that context, an atavism is something that occurs when a trait is expressed in an organism that it doesn't usually have that trait expressed. It's like in its evolutionary history, it's just those genes aren't expressed. So I guess a classic example of this would be like a vestigial tail. Okay, so on to the next one, ontology. Uh, so this is the branch of metaphysics dealing with the nature of being or a set of concepts and categories in a subject area or domain that shows their properties and their relations between them. So the dictionary gives this example. Quote, what's new about our ontology is that it is created automatically from large data sets. So that's fun. Uh, <laughs> all right. Um, so for a man who says that he hates philosophy, we sure did talk a lot about epistemology. Uh, epistemology, by the way, is the branch of philosophy where we ask about knowledge and knowing. Uh, jokes are always funnier when you have to explain them, right? Uh, so Douglas makes what I think are some pretty cogent statements on the point. I'm actually tempted to classify him as an occult philosopher. I'm teasing. <laughs> anyway, based on my interactions with him, he's super cool, very interesting, and he actually knows a dark secret about me, which he's promised not to divulge. And I was really surprised to learn that he's single, just saying, everybody. 
so, okay, one last thing I want to point out before I play the interview. So Douglas tells a story pretty early on in it about writing something down in a book and it becoming so. And I just want to urge everybody to, like, take a little bit of time to think about that. All right, so let's get into it here. Well, today, my special guest is Douglas from the What Magic Is This podcast. Thank you so much for being on my show, dude. I really appreciate it. Not at all. No, no, it's absolutely my pleasure. So yeah, I kind of found your show fairly recently, and I've got to say, I can't get enough of it. Like, There's a lot of information in every episode, and dude, your notes, the episode notes, (laughs) it's sort of like this curated list of amazing resources. So could you... like? Would you mind like telling me a little bit about yourself and your show and all of that? Sure. So I'll start with myself. I'm uh, I'm mid thirties. Uh, I've been doing magic basically since I was twenty years old. Although when I was younger, several experiences were very readily apparent that the things that people were telling me about consensus reality, which is a term I hate to use, but there's no better term, uh, was incorrect in some ways. So I've always had a maybe when I was before I was a magician, I always had perhaps like a somewhat spiritual mystical side. And then uh, around 20 years old, I decided that uh, this magic thing is something that needs to be looked into. So I I basically wrote down in a a notebook that I had that I was given over Christmas, uh, looks like I'm a magician. And from there on, I believe it was like November 23rd, 2003. Uh, and yeah, since then, I've just decided that uh, I was going to be a magician and that this was going to be my life. And it has been my life for a very long period of time. So I consider myself a bit of a late boomer. I compare myself to other people that started magic when they were 13, 14, that kind of things. And as much as I'd like to say that I was a magician at that time, I wasn't really doing anything practical. I was more of just reading about ghosts and UFOs and, and uh, near-death experiences and Carl Jung and Herman Hesse and all of these uh, interesting writers. And, and uh, yeah, that's that's basically it. As far as the podcast is concerned, I saw that there was a lot of things that occult podcasts did. And they seem to follow along the same lines as in uh, Magician A gets Magician B on program and they talk about how great they are or go through information as if they are going to appear on Occult Jeopardy at some point, which didn't really seem very beneficial to people that are curious about magic. If, If somebody wanted to get into magic, the worst thing that one could do is go to the podcasts. They turn on a podcast. I don't want to mention any names or anything like that. It just it just seemed to me at the time that everybody's podcast seemed to be almost the exact same thing. And so they'd start this podcast and then they'd want to turn it off within five minutes because you have no basis for understanding of what they're talking about and you get lost very quickly. So I just saw that there was a it was a real lack of not hand-holding, but a comforting guide for for magic and people wanting to come towards magic. And I think just the idea of doing a topic-based podcast around specific topics like consciousness or the imagination or even something as, as pointed as talking about a book would be somewhat beneficial. And so the show notes themselves are there to also help because 
you can only put so much information into a podcast. You can only have so much content before it starts to get very boring. I mean, I try to do my my episodes in less than two hours, but there's always way more to talk about. So I just overload my show notes with tons and tons and tons of, of resources for people to to look things up. And those are quite popular. But more than anything, I just felt that there was zero podcasts out there for people that wanted to come to magic as a beginner or curious or skeptical. And I also found that uh, there really wasn't a podcast about topics of magic. So I just put the two together and I ran with it. So that's that's basically it. Yeah, well, I've really been enjoying it. It's kind of funny, like the way that I found your show, I, there's a technique that I use called digital scrying, where it's kind of whatever, it's, it's something that I like to do where it involves like Googling keywords, basically, that right. you pick up from meditation sessions or whatever. That's how I found the show. And it was so funny when I saw that the first episode was Discordianism, because before I like to ask Eris for guidance before I nice. do this, and I laughed my fucking ass off. Oh, wonderful. But what you said about it in the end of the episode, I thought was so kind of beautiful about it being like this kind of force for like not taking things too seriously like do you mind just touching on that a little bit yeah perhaps i can touch on it because this is something that is very current right now now i'm not throwing shade at anybody but right now i just hear constantly over and over and over again that we're going to be headed into a period of time astrologically that is not going to be good and as much i i, I do put validity into astrology probably not as much as other people, but I just see a lot of people either emailing me through Instagram or through Twitter or other vehicles for communication that the anxiety nearly drips off of all of the words that they're saying. And it's a very anchoring thing because the world is getting quite serious right now. It really, really is. But a way of not dealing with it, but preparing yourself to what will probably come to happen is being able to laugh at things, really. I think that humor is such a beneficial force and, and not humor in a way where you're making fun of other people or they they don't know, but I'm prepared for the storm that's coming is, I think, a bit backhanded. So what Discordian really showed me in a way was to be able to take a look at the world as being a little bit chaotic, but in almost being okay with the chaos and laughing along with it. Now, that's not to say that I laugh at people dying or that are being oppressed. It's it's more of a perspective. Hey, look, the world's been ending for as long as we've been around, and that's just the way that things are right now. But uh, try to have some fun while it's, while it's happening. And that might sound a little bit trite or glib, but I, I really do think that Banishing with laughter gets some, it's one of those things get used so, so often in, in the occult, but it really is one of the most important things. If you can't laugh at the absurdity of it all in a kind and nice way, then I don't know if you're doing things right. Yeah, very well put. Thank you so much for uh, saying, for, and for, also for touching on banishing with laughter, because it is an essentially magical act. I know this is a, like you said, it's kind of a trite thing everybody says, but like, it's very fucking true. Absolutely. <laughs> so don't forget to laugh, everybody listening. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, we're, we are headed into some very interesting times, of course, absolutely. But I think one of the things that will really get you through is to, to is to see that somehow and know somehow within yourself that things are going to be okay. Uh, you will survive this. I really do think that you will. And 
And strangely enough, uh, one of the things that will help you survive is being able to inject as much humor into it as, as possible in a nice way. Again, not, not laughing at other people, but being able to just say, shit's fucked and it's kind of funny. That's it. Yeah, definitely. Well put. Thank you. <laughs> I have heard you speak a little bit on the topic of ancient Egyptian magic. And I know there's actually a whole episode on your show about it, which is pretty sweet. Thank you. I was wondering, like, what about this first kind of captivated you? And like, what about it are you, are you so into? So I've been captivated by ancient Egypt, probably just like everybody when they're kids and they see hieroglyphs or the pyramids. There's something very tempting about it. But my biggest uh, kick towards ancient Egypt came when my family decided to visit Las Vegas and we stayed in the Luxor um, hotel. <laughs> if, if you're from Alberta, um, it's basically winter eight months of the year. And that's without any kind of hyperbole. It's, it's cold for eight, uh, three quarters of the year. It's cold, very cold. So we like to go to places that are cheap and uh, everything you want is there. All you have to do is clap your hands and there it is. But we stayed at this hotel because I don't know the elevators go uh, in case it's a diagonal it's it's yeah it's a fascinating place I have yeah. also stayed here <laughs> yeah yeah but what they had there was two things well first of all they had a, an arcade a Sega arcade of course since you're a kid nine years old arcades are the best but they also they also had a small museum there and uh, the museum was touted as having block from or an artifact from King Tut's tomb, and of course, all it was was like a block of, of rock. Really, it was just, it was just <laughs> but it was, but it was still incredibly fascinating to me. Uh, everything about it, it just spoke as it does. I think it speaks to everybody in in some strange way. But uh, of course, so I bought a ton of books, and my parents were. Uh, bless their souls. I, I had some very great parents. My dad was very specifically interested in Greek and Macedonian history. That was his thing. And so when I said that I wanted books for, for about ancient Egypt, he was more than happy to comply. Just he would buy these books for me. And of course, the gift shop at Luxor Hotel was fantastic for that kind of stuff. Uh, so ancient Egypt became an incredibly fascinating thing for me. And it's been a, a, a near lifelong interest for me. As far as the magic itself, I'm, I'm, less, I'm less interested in the mechanics of ancient Egyptian magic, because when you look at it, one of the best books you can find is a book by Robert Rittner called The, the Mechanics of Ancient Egyptian Magic and Ritual, I believe. I could be wrong there, but if, if you go through the mechanics of how ancient Egyptians did magic, from what we have evidence for, because uh, there's not a lot of evidence that remains, what you see are basically the kind of magic that we do now. A lot of apotropaea, which is for protection, writing down of letters and petitioning uh, gods or the spirits of dead people, and uh, they have uh, writing things on pots and then destroying them in some kind of a cursing way. So all of the mechanics of ancient Egypt look very, very familiar to us. What I'm mostly interested in, as far as ancient Egypt is concerned, is how they saw the world the and, and their epistemologies more than anything and how they understood the world. When we were talking about it before the mics were turned on, when Ramsey Dukes in his classic book, Sisopomy, mm -hmm. which, which is fantastic, he says that there's basically... Uh, four ways in which people try to understand the, the world in the West. And those are art, science, religion, and magic. What's interesting to me, and the more you understand about ancient Egypt, 
is that those four things were literally all the same thing to the ancient Egyptians. If you were to try and say that this is science, or this part of what they do is, is, is art, or this part of what they do is, is medicine, uh, they would say, I don't know what you're talking about. All of those things were combined in some really incredible way. Now, what the Egyptian worldview had more than anything, I think, was a way of seeing everything around you as being sacred, incredibly sacred, and the fact that they would take a look at the stars and its, uh, I guess, its role in the life and existence of absolutely everything and to the ancient Egyptians, they saw that we came from the stars, that we will return from the stars, and that we are the stars. And more so than any culture in, in history, we, we tend to forget just how long the ancient Egyptians were around for. They were mm -hmm. thousands of years, thousands, thousands, thousands. What you see in the old kingdom to, to the new kingdom, new, new kingdom is kind of what we tend to think about when we think about ancient Egypt, except for things like the pyramids and the Sphinx, that's old kingdom. But uh, New Kingdom Egypt was a very dynastic place. It was really quite wonderful. So I'm more fascinated. The ancient Egyptian magic is wonderful. And you're pretty much, as I mentioned in the episode, you're pretty much doing ancient Egyptian magic, no matter what you're doing, except maybe a little less spitting. <laughs> I mean, depending on what you're into. <laughs> true, true enough. True enough. Absolutely. But uh, they, they would spit and lick things quite a bit. But I'm more fascinated with what world that they lived in, which... For us who are so distanced from it, we notice that there is really something about what they did that is overly human and overly part of what we need in our lives now, I'd say, which is a belief in the sanctity of all things and the part it plays, as well as where we came from and where we could head towards. So ancient Egypt has been a constant guide. And for people that are, I guess, interested in ancient Egypt, one of the worst things that you could do is to buy a book on ancient Egyptian magic, besides the one that I mentioned by Robert Rittner, <laughs> uh, because we really don't know too much about how they practice magic. We, we don't know a ton. Um, there's not a lot of that is existent, but we do know how they live their lives and what kind of wisdom that they had. So you can specifically pick up two books um, I know it's not my podcast, but I can't help but recommend books. Oh, no, I was hoping that we would get some sweet book recommendations out of you. <laughs> Absolutely. So there's a, there's a book called The Temple of the Cosmos by Jeremy Nadler. And he also wrote another book called The Shamanic Wisdom of the Pyramid Texts. Those two books, I think, are maybe the greatest books about ancient Egypt ever. I remember reading Temple of the Cosmos when I was maybe 21, when I just started my magical journey. And it was, it's, and to this day, I, it's never that far away. It is still one of my favorite things to read. It's just wonderful. But the ancient e Egyptians, they, as far as the history of magic, they get a bit of a bad rap because from people like uh, Agrippa to people like uh, Court de, de, Antoine Court de Gebelon and, and others, they have this idea that there's this mystery that has existed. They had this idea that there was a mystery of Egypt and that all through time it was, it was called the, I think Agrippa called it the Egyptian doctrine uh, in a couple of places in his three books of occult philosophy. But there was this idea that throughout time that they had this uh, mystery that was passed down through them. And then that went into things like Rosicrucianism, to Freemasonry, to the Golden Dawn, to Thelema, to Neopaganism and Wicca. And it's just, it's a complete load of nonsense. So I think if you get ancient Egypt right, and you get the history from a good place, 
specifically not through modern scholarship because they are woefully lost as far as trying to explain the mysticism of Egypt. It's really quite awful. But going towards guides like Jeremy Nadler is maybe the best thing that you can do and just see that there are aspects of ancient Egypt that are true and that you can look up and that are far more profound than this ridiculous idea that they had this mystery that has been kept alive for through magical orders since since they stopped being uh, a force in the world. So get Egypt right and you get magic right. I'll, I'll, I'll say that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's interesting. And so you're telling me that the Book of Thoth isn't actually about Egyptian tarot? <laughs> no, sorry, sorry. <laughs> I had suspected as much after I read it. <laughs> well, here's the, here's, here's the funny thing, though, is that guys like Antoine Court de Gabalon and Eliphas Levy, they said that they, I believe uh, Court de Gabalon saw a pack of tarot cards, and he was immediately like, this came from ancient Egypt because all things... Uh, ancient Egyptian are are profound, and so this must have come from Egypt. And and Elvis Levy did the same thing. Oh, it comes from Egypt. But here's the thing: they're actually kind of right in a way, because tarot, in a way, is a descendant from Mamluk cards, which is a pa- a pack of playing cards in which they had things like scimitars, which are swords, coins, co- which are coins or pentacles, whatever deck you're using, uh, polo sticks, which eventually became sticks or wands or batons, and uh, what's the last one? cup of some kind cups yes they had cups that's the one um i'm not a tarot head. i do have tons of tarot decks but it's not one of my go-tos for divination but uh, it actually did come from from egypt not ancient egypt but it did come from egypt so they were right in a way yeah yeah that's very cool okay well and even so you know just saying to everybody listening if that's what you're into i mean maybe it is nonsense but there's nothing wrong with nonsense sometimes <laughs> so as long as as long as you know it's nonsense, truthfully. Yes, as long as it's useful nonsense, right? <laughs> yeah, I think for people that um, we have arterial differences as far as how we view magic, but there were two articles written by John Michael Greer. Uh, if you go to his site Ecosophia uh, and just type in the search bar or even in Google uh, "occult history" part one and part two, you really start to see that uh, the first part is the one that I think everybody should read, which is goes along with what I'm saying, that most of what, I'd say 95% of what we consider a history of the occult is absolute bullshit. The worst place to get the history of the occult is from other occultists. But uh, the second part is more about, uh, of, of his occult history, is more about, hey, ideas and imaginative ideas, things like Atlantis or whatever the theosophists were talking about, or even things like the Golden Dawn, are useful as long as you realize that they are imaginative ideas. Uh, To pass them off as historical fact is really deleterious to not just your practice, but for the continuum of magic itself. So nonsense is a bit okay. It's not where I tend to go. And specifically when you're talking about things like occult philosophy, which are two words that I absolutely hate. I'm just, that's not my thing. Uh, I don't like philosophy and I, I, kind of just like the word occult because I don't think it is hidden. But uh, if, as long as you realize that uh, you, what you're doing is nonsense, then that's okay. The, the, the minute you start saying that all of these things like a, a mystical tradition that has existed since ancient Egypt is actually factually correct, I think uh, uh, you're not doing anybody any favors, least of all yourself. I definitely agree with that. You know, don't don't uh, get high on your own supply if you're going to fuck around with nonsense. True <laughs> like... enough. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well put. Actually, I really like that. I might be, I might be stealing that. Thank you. You're welcome to it. <laughs> and we can argue about semantics and philosophy some other time. Oh, oh for I would sure. Love to. 
Um, you were right. Um, I think I heard you say that occultists love to argue about things. I've noticed that too. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 either argue about things or it's look how smart I am. And uh, the two things they, I'm just tired. I think I'm just very tired of modern occult uh, occult. What passes for modern occultism right now? It's 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 going to happen with every subculture. And truth be told, magic is a subculture. It's it's. If there's one thing that you can say about the occult, it's, it's not that what people are doing in the is is occult because most people are willing to talk about it. It's more so in the fact that it's it's still hidden from any major mainstream news source. The only time anybody will talk about magic is to try and make fun of people that believe in it and that kind of thing. So that's that's the only way that it's occult. It's hidden because <laughs> it's it's meant to be that way because we're all deluded, basically, right? Yeah. And, you know, actually, I take another meaning, too, from um, occult in terms of, like, a. I know you don't like this phrase, but, like, whatever, occultism or occult philosophy, like... It's stuff that like there's layers to it, so it you might find hidden things in it. Yeah. The more you come back to it, but I mean, you could say the same thing about a lot of different things, like science, like a lot of branches of science. Like every time you come back to a certain theorem, you might find some new depth in it, or I don't know. I mean, so yeah, it's probably wrong to say that only occult things are occult. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, you might be right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I love semantics. Anyway, okay, so the topic of necromancy has come up, and I know that you did just do a whole I episode. just released thing. an episode, yeah. Yeah, so you don't have to talk too much about it, because I did listen to the episode, and there's some fascinating shit in there, so I definitely recommend everybody go check that out. But is there anything like that you'd like to say about it, um, just as a, in general, just anything like maybe clear up any misconceptions or anything like that? Or More so than anything, I just think that it's a registration of the fact that it was something we did for a very long period of time, uh, having a relationship with those that were departed uh, well before their time or uh, in good time. So for some strange reason, what happened uh, because of Again, we use the word occult, but uh, it got relegated very quickly within the world of magic because of its associations with things like spirit, uh, spiritualism uh, in the 14th century, which uh, people like Houdini did a pretty good job of trying to demolish. But uh, if you actually go back to a lot of the uh, articles and uh, things that were written about at the time, things specifically by uh, Frederick Myers, you see that there's quite an incredible amount of evidence for after-death contact. So as far as necromancy is concerned, I think it's just about time that people really start to get this relationship back with basically speaking to the dead, uh, asking things of them, not too much. Truthfully, in a way, I kind of agree with somebody like Stephen Skinner that the dead don't know more in death than they did when they were alive, uh, but just really taking your time and talking with them and forming a, a relationship because we did it for such a long period of time. There's, it's, it's a 30,000 year long lineage of uh, after death contact that we've had that has literally only just been severed over the last 150 years, maybe 300, 300 to 150 years. And I just really think that it's time for us to get back to it. And it's not spooky in any way, shape or form. You go to certain cultures around the world and they will seem uh, ancestral animists. I mean, specifically in places like Tibet, I mean, they do, you do think that they're all Buddhists until, you know, uh, uh, until you get into their homes and you realize they all have ancestral altars and they, they talk about the life that has existed in all things. So I just think that uh, getting back to, not so much in an atavistic way, but getting back into forming a relationship with the spirits of the dead is incredibly fascinating, incredibly important. And if my show is popular to people, you will know that I'm, again, less less so much with the occult philosophy, more so much about the uh, 
practical side of magic uh, and and spirit contact and spirit interaction. If you want to see what kind of agency spirits do have, the best way of doing it is through necromancy. Truthfully, you will get things happening very quickly. Sometimes spooky, certainly, yes, absolutely, <laughs> but uh, more of the times more profound and beautiful than than even you would expect. It really is a very beautiful practice. I, I recommend it for absolutely everybody. Uh, in my episode, I said, you know, it might be one of the best places for beginners. And I, I, I really do stand by that. So I think that, uh, and, you, and you almost know how to do it. I think we all do. I, when I released the episode, I got a ton of emails. It was a glut, just an absolute glut of them being like, well, like how do I start? What textbooks do I use? How do I do this? How do I do that? What do I do for offerings? And Besides pointing them in, like, say, like, look at my show notes, it was more of like, just go to a graveyard and just turn your mind off and just listen and just feel and intuit because they're there. And it's as easy as when you step outside in a big city, just notice for a second, not the sound of cars or people talking, but try to hear the song of birds because they're there. Even in a big city, the birds are there. And it's almost like you're noticing it for the first time. Same thing goes for the spirits. If you just go to a graveyard or beside a river or any place that there was a large congregation of people at one point and just turn everything off for a little bit, you will be overwhelmed with them trying to reach out to you. And this isn't some kind of like, I guess, like mystic clairvoyance thing. It, it almost becomes overly apparent that that there's spirits and necromancy is by far the best way of doing it so just use your intuition more than anything when you get out into certain areas turn things off just as much as you can don't be analytical just let things come to you and it'll be so apparent that there are other things there yeah no dude that's really well put and the idea of like kind of getting comfortable with i don't know you could call it the death current you could call it whatever you want with this just this kind of like this vibe, it can be a way of becoming more uh, secure in knowing that, you know, it's going to happen to everybody, right? Um, Absolutely. Being able to like release control is so important to like a lot of different types of magic, even for something as simple as like the spare method of like doing sigils, like um, mm -hmm. you can't be lusting after results afterwards. This idea of, yeah, like starting with necromancy, that actually makes the total sense it, for that reason in addition to all of the stuff that you said yeah it's just i think we've our our theories of mind are really terrible right now our our epistemology is is one based off of evidence and explanation which is our first reaction to go to there is nothing more boring to me than when somebody tries to explain this really incredible phenomenon that that we go through i mean uh even with things like the onslaught of programming about ghost hunters and things like that that still has that epistemology of trying to find an explanation to what's going on mm -hmm. I, i'm i'm tired of it i'm really quite tired of it just hang with the phenomena because the phenomena exists and it's it's very serene and beautiful and truthfully an epistemology of experience I believe is is the next way that we're going to be headed towards one of being able to be all right with experiencing things and not having to explain them uh, or even provide some kind of scientific evidence for it. So our uh, the way that we view the world right now is it, it did really well for a long period of time. And it doesn't mean that if we were to go to an epistemology of, of experience that all the things that we want suddenly fall away, that that no, we go back to living in caves in a demon haunted world. Yeah. No, no, we 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 get we still have those things and more. 
So just hang with the phenomenon. Be, approach things from a phenomenon-based um, epistemology is, is super helpful. You can still have your cell phone and believe in spirits. It's fine. A hundred percent. I love it. <laughs> okay. So to switch gears a little bit, sure. this is something that I think about all of the time, which is time. Time. To what extent, if any, do you think that what might be termed as, quote, peculiar oh my gosh, <laughs> peculiarities <laughs> of time uh, might be responsible for some of the phenomena that is witnessed in the area of occult or paranormal stuff? Uh, pretty much 100%. Uh, all magic is time magic. I really do think that. And if you've listened to my show, people know that I'm very recently enamored with a book called Time Loops by Eric Wargo. It has been called by one of my heroes, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Kripal, I believe is uh, head of, I think... Uh, Comparative Religion at Rice University, although I don't know if he still has that post or not. He called this book, Time Loops, the most important book on the paranormal since Jacques Vallée's Passport to Majonia. Really? Very bold claim. So when I saw that review, I was like, I have to pick up this book. And I'm not kidding. I read the book three times in about four months, and it is quite incredible. Now, in some ways, it does try to explain things, but it's also huge, 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 huge on a lot of stories of people that were so wrapped in time loops in the fact that uh, to to basically explain a time loop, it's basically that uh, your experiences that you have that may seem somewhat occult or paranormal, like seeing the future, affect the future. And so your actions in the present will change that future in a slight way, which has, which the future events will have an event, uh, change the events of the past. So it gets this giant loop. It's really crazy to think about. But I think that as far as what we can consider all of the phenomena, so much of it has to do with time. Um, one wonders whether or not when, say, to, to something that's familiar to you, something like sigils, which I use as well constantly, it's, it's sigils are a great form of practical magic, is something called sigil bleed which is the, you would get the idea of you wanted to make a sigil, but say you're uh, away from home or you don't have your notebook with you, you just get the ideas like, I need to sigil for this certain thing. And then before you even get home, that thing has already happened, right? So this mm-hmm. is, this is, this is sigil bleed. Uh, or before you launch the sigil or activate it, I don't know what terms people are using these days, <laughs> th- that, that it happens. Uh, what could that be? Could that be literally you intuiting some part of the future which has an effect on the past? So is this this is this some in some way a time loop? Behaviors as far as ritual and whatnot, people ask, well, how is ritual related to time in any way, shape, or form? But what we find is that behaviors are very conducive to to time loops in, in the respect that uh, you have an intention or you have some kind of a, a practical goal and you're trying to see it, see it through as through time and into a result in some way, besides something like a devotional work or something like that. But uh, is your behavior itself in some way affecting time, or is it that you're intuiting time? So uh, even things as crazy as dreams, which uh, the best way to put dreams, because if you were to talk to most people in materialist uh, science or scientism, they would say that dreams are useless. It's basically uh, your brain off-gassing its memories from the day or the days before. 
You're just defragging. <laughs> exactly. And which is so unbelievably dumb. The, the largest vector into the paranormal and divination for all of history has been through dreams. Dreams have a purpose. We don't know what it is, and it might be several purposes. Um, the one that I'm landing on most right now these days is that dreams are literally future structures built from past bricks. And those past bricks are your memories and things from uh, the day that you had. And you were actually catching glimpses of instances and occurrences that will occur in the next couple of days to the next couple of weeks to the next couple of months to the next couple of years. It's just that we have a very hard time deciphering things. So as far as magic and time is concerned, you can't separate the two. All magic is time magic. It really is. And as far as phenomena of ghosts and spirits, you can extrapolate from there, like whether you're seeing uh, a slip of time or something like that. But uh, yeah, it's time is so important to magic. I, every day I do uh, an invocation to the god Ion from the Greek magical papyri. It's I've been obsessed with time since I was younger, like probably before Egypt or anything like that. Time has been such a big part of my mind and uh, my mind and my uh, my thinking. And so to realize just how important time is to, to magic is one of those things that uh, I think, just like Egypt, get it right. And then once you get it right, try to understand the strange cycles of time and how they influ influence and how you are maybe a being that exists in a state of constantly reaching out into the future and perceiving it before you know it, um, the better your magic is. Definitely. I've suspected some things along similar lines myself. Um, spirals upon spirals. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a whole bunch of models for, for time, and they're all interesting. The, I think the one that uh, Eric Wargo goes through in time loops is uh, Minkowski block universe. Minkowski was uh, Albert Einstein's teacher, but uh, basically it just says that all time is all existent in one place. And it's, it's always been there. There is no past, present, or future, um, but it just stays there. And models are interesting and models are fun. But right now, again, talking about things like uh, phenomena, I'm more interested in the fact that I will have a dream uh, or I'll be coming out of a dream, something called hypnopompia, and in which I will just shut my mind down for a little bit and remember the images, maybe jot them down if they were somewhat vivid. And eventually you start to see just how true everything comes. Like if we, if we pay attention to the moments before you fall asleep and the moments after you wake up, you will just see how prophetic you are. And it's, I'm not making that up. That is besides necromancy. If you really want to get into the occult, start a dream journal it's it's shocking the things that will start to come true and you will see it and this and everybody has this capability as long as you're able to remember your dreams in a way or at least parts of them and as long as you're able to recall things that happen after you wake up and or uh, before you go to bed you will see just how crazy time actually is yeah absolutely and what you said about the dream journal definitely everybody listening that is that can be it can be huge i'm not saying that you have to do it but it can be huge and uh, to side note about remembering your dreams, uh, one of my friends said the other day to me, and I think this is true. Shout out to you, Chaz. He says, I don't I smoke way too much weed to worry about having any pesky prophetic dreams. So right. if that's something that you're into and you're having a hard time remembering your dreams, that's something that you might consider just saying um, <laughs> if you're wanting to remember dreams, uh, maybe cut cut back. <laughs> Yeah, the that's that's one of the major reasons why I I, I don't smoke marijuana. But um, there's other tricks as well. I mean, 
for cultures that we know were big dreamers because they constantly talk about dreams, they actually split their sleep up into several portions during the day. And so uh, I find if you really want to remember your dreams, literally set an alarm two to three hours after you plan on going to bed, waking yourself up and then doing that once or twice a, a night. Trust me, you'll get back to remember your, your dreams very quickly. Yeah, what is that called? Like awake to sleepfulness or something? Or like I believe it's called polyphasic. No, no, not polyphasic sleep. Um, that's only sleeping for like twenty minutes. But I, I yeah, I, I know there is a term for it. But yeah, doesn't. there was some term for it. And they actually did some clinical studies and found that that was the most effective way to to do uh, lucid dreaming. So no, for sure. Absolutely. Okay. Well, heavy stuff. Let's take a little break here. What's the word? All right, so this is the portion of the show where I invite the guests to ask the oracle any question that they would like. Wonderful. And I will perform bibliomancy to ask, uh, answer it. So, Douglas, what would you like to ask the oracle? So this has been a bit on my mind recently, but I, I got to ask it. And uh, I, I'm not a fan of yes or no questions for, for uh, any kind of divination. They're just, it's, it's a waste of time. <laughs> but uh, so I'm going to ask a, a bit of a deeper one here. So here, here we go. What would be the consequences of me moving away from Toronto at some point in the next two years? Okay, excellent. And if you have one handy, please flip a coin. A coin. Oh my God. No, I do not have a coin. Oh, that's um, okay. I have one right here. Perfect. Thank you. No <laughs> Nobody uses real money anymore anyway. <laughs> what is this coin of which you speak? All right. It is tails. And actually, let me go ahead and pull up the bibliomancy roll tables. I'm guessing that if you don't have a coin, you probably don't have a 12-sided die on you. <laughs> no, no, I don't. I, okay. I, that we'll, is we'll, fine. will two dice count? <laughs> no, no, that's okay. Uh, <laughs> I will here. I will go ahead and roll one for you, though. And it is a nine. Nice. The book that we were going to be consulting is Siddhartha by Herman Hess. I will go grab it, and I will be right back. Perfect. Oh, Eris, what would be the possible consequences of Douglas moving away from Toronto in the next couple of years? Certainly, I traveled for my pleasure, laughed Siddhartha. Why not? I have become acquainted with people and new districts. I have enjoyed friendships and confidence. Now, if I had been Kamaswami, I should have departed immediately feeling very annoyed and when I was unable to make a purchase and time and money would indeed have been lost. But I spent a number of good days, learned much, had pleasures and did not hurt either myself or others through annoyance or hastiness. If I ever go there again, perhaps to violate or harvest for some other purpose, friendly people will receive me and I will be glad that I did not previously display hastiness and displeasure. And there's your answer. Wonderful. I love it. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> it's, it's like, um, okay, that's, that's pretty much, that's pretty bang on there. It's fantastic. <laughs> the Oracle has been on fucking fire lately, actually. No doubt. That's, that's crazy. <laughs> <I love it. laughs> Thank <Wonderful>. you, Eris. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, no, that's, that's great. I, I love it. That was one of the books where, um, as I mentioned, just to sidetrack for, for a second, but uh, I was in grade 12 and my teacher, uh, Mr. Oz, I'm not going to uh, say his full name, but he was known as <laughs> Mr. Mr. Oz. Uh, he gave everybody a list of books that they could read for their yearly book project. And there was about 50 books on there. And um he was, again, I was a somewhat, I guess, mystical, spiritual child. And most of my teachers from 
grade nine onwards kind of knew that I was a bit uh, weird. Yeah, they called me a weirdo. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So Mr. Uh, Mr. Oz, uh, he gave the book lists to everybody. And then, and then he came to me and he actually took me aside and he said, Doug, I think there's a book you need to read. And I said, uh, okay, uh, I really want to read. I think one of, one of the books on there was like, uh, oh, what was it? Like Catch-22 or something like that, or, or On the Road, you know, the, the normal mm-hmm. stuff. And, and uh, you know, when you're 18 years old and you want to screw the world. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, but, mis- but Mr. Oz was like, I think there's a book you need to read, Doug. And so he suggested Herman Hesse's Sid Artha. And yeah, it was, it's a short book, right? And so it doesn't, it doesn't take, I think I literally read it in three hours and, uh, but yes, it was just such an important book. And from there, everything else that Herman Hess has written, uh, Steppenwolf, it's just, it's wonderful. So yeah, uh, shout out to the teachers that know you better than you almost know yourself because, uh, yeah, it's, it's wonderful. And I love it. Thank, thank you, Iris. That's a <laughs> fantastic, <laughs> fantastic little, I, I love it. It's great. Mm-hmm. Yay. <laughs> Hell yeah. No, I I love the book too. Um definitely when I read it it was one of those transitional periods and it was like, yeah, fuck, it doesn't matter how you get there. Everybody's got to take their own path, you know. It's very yeah. cool. <laughs> yes, no, it's such an important work and I suggest for everybody if you have not read Siddhartha, it's at, at any age, it's still a wonderful book and it's it's simple, it's sweet and almost I, I think I could call it a perfect book. I think I really could call it a book. It's just wonderful. Well, that's fucking high praise from somebody who's as into books as you are. <laughs> so. I, 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 pr- I probably read an unhealthy amount, and I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but it's, yeah, I read a lot. <laughs> well, obsession is a thing for all of us, so. <laughs> no doubt. Well, you're, if you're, you're not a weirdo unless you have at least three obsessions. <laughs> and as far as obsessions go, I mean, reading is probably one of the better ones. So oh, it's, you know. it's pretty benign. It's a pretty benign obsession. Besides on besides on the pocketbook, it's a pretty benign obsession for sure. Yeah, <laughs> I was just thinking about that. I was like, oh, but all the money I spend. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's fine. <laughs> okay. So here's another kind of time related question. Sure. What advice would you give to your past magical self? as you're now considered, you know, their future magical self relative to that past magical self. This was one that where I I read it last night, the question last night, you were thankfully uh, you gave me the questions a while ago. Actually, I believe I I was in uh, a totally different province in in Canada. Uh, You have states in the United States. We have provinces up in Canada, just in case anybody's a little bit iffy on that. But when I got this question, I was like, oh man, I I don't know. So I I kicked around a couple of things then. And then I kicked around a couple of things last night. And truthfully, I think I, I think what I would tell my past self is to let go of the fear of being known as magician or into the occult and the esoteric. People knew that I liked things like UFOs and ghosts because those are, you can, but to actually say that you believe there's some kind of uh, strange objective reality to them in some strange way. Uh, Not just that, that you can affect parts of your future and through acts of, of sorcery and magic, because I, Up until last year, last June, when I started the podcast, maybe about 10 people in the entire world knew about my proclivities as far as magic is concerned. Um, So I think this was mainly due to a fear of being, and I'm one of those people that doesn't give a shit about what other people think about me, but maybe I do, uh, strangely enough, because a lot of people consider me, I I don't know, I don't know why they would think so, but uh, they consider me very intelligent, somewhat rational, reason-based, intellectual strangely enough. 
So why would somebody be into, I guess, collecting graveyard dirt and draw, drawing on pieces of paper and putting them around the house? Why, why would they be into such things? Why are you yelling at that stuff? <laughs> Whatever. Yeah, yeah. You're yelling at a candle, Douglas. Why are you yelling at a candle? Uh, but to, truthfully, I don't think it did me any favors. And since, I don't want to say like coming out of the closet because I, I would never want to degrade anybody else's struggles with doing so. But you know, it, it's it's basically the best metaphor that I have right now. Since doing it, uh, the world has opened up to me in such a wonderful way as far as meeting people, people coming t- forward to me, people that are shy about talking about this kind of stuff and relating an experience, an extraordinary experience they have, which is so many of my friends and so many people that know me as acquaintances, but they are comfortable with coming up to me now and saying, Doug, this, this thing happened to me when I was really quite young and, and, and it really affected me. And I say, don't worry, guess what? It happens to everybody. It happened to me as well. So it, I kicked myself in a way because I, I would have been far more readily available to have people talk about these things to me. I would have led a much more fulfilling existence and I would have probably alleviated a lot of my own anxiety as well as the anxieties of friends and people around me. I have have lost zero friends since coming out as a magician or into the occult. Everybody just either ignores it or they're willing to talk to me about it and they're really quite caring. So I don't know what I was afraid of. So the biggest thing would just be I you're okay. You can, at the age of 20, Doug, it's totally okay that you're into alternative spirituality or magic. You would have been totally fine and nobody would have thought less of you of it. You would have probably got a couple of jibes with the boys while you were drinking, but that's about it. And you're a strong, uh, you're a strong lad. So you, you can suffer, uh, suffer through such things, but I don't know why it took me so long. I don't have regrets about it, but I just wish I did it sooner. Hell yeah, man. And you know what, to people listening too, like, yeah, extending that further out, like maybe there is something that you're afraid of trying or afraid of like, I don't know, expressing or exploring. And I mean, fuck, life is short. <laughs> Give it a shot, right? It really is. So that was that, that was 16 years of my life uh, where only about 10 people in the world uh, who I loved and trusted completely knew about this side of me. Otherwise, people would just be like, you You've got some odd books on your shelf, Douglas. And then that's a, that's where the conversation would have started and ended. But the amount of people that have come forward, uh, including friends and including family, to say that I had a very strange experience or this is what I think uh, has really given me a ton of hope. Hope that I could have used in my past. I really could have. So again, no regrets, but I, I just wish it happened much sooner. Yeah, I know. I definitely agree with you there. Similar experience here. Uh, you know, all of that anxiety associated with like keeping this secret that you don't need to keep necessarily. I mean, obviously, depending on what kind of cultural your situation you in, you're in, yeah. like, that that could definitely be a thing. But yeah, but yeah, I mean, it's when you have the chance to express yourself, and it's not going to cause you problems, or it's not going to you know put you in danger. Then give it a shot. <laughs> Yeah, truthfully. And uh, the other thing about it is that when you start to open it up, and it could be as easy as just having some beers with friends at the end of the night and saying, I had this very strange dream, or this, I saw a UFO when I was 14. Just say that, put it out there, and then listen while the cavalcade of the rest of the people present will have and share similar experiences. This stuff is, as Jeffrey Kripal, again, one of my heroes, has said, it is. It is normal, and it is actually quite banal in many ways because it happens to all of us. Yeah, that is fascinating. 
I'm actually thinking about Jacques Vallée's Messengers of Deception now and one of his kind of hypotheses that he was like working from one of his assumptions is that the there's too many of these sightings happening but like I don't know if that's I don't know I'm, I'm kind of thinking about that now and wondering if, if he still has that opinion or I don't know whatever something to meditate on later <laughs> Jacques going into a an information-based system for trying to explain the universe which is awesome which is really quite incredible and specifically if you're interested in things like synchronicities uh, because yeah he's he's doing some really interesting work there but I doubt I he's too clever of a guy to change that kind of an opinion uh, at this stage in his life. I believe he just turned 80 years old, so he's getting up there in age, that but he's, sh he's still very sharp. And uh, he's one of he, uh, also a hero, like without a, without a doubt. If you're interested in the occult and you haven't read Jacques Vallée, I don't know if I have hope for you, but he is, <laughs> he is such, I'm always shocked when I meet people that are into magic and they're like, nah, nah, I've never read any Jacques Vallée. And I go, mm, You're clutching at your hair, what? Mm, mm. No, I, I just give a, it might be, it might be a bit of a judgmental stink eye, but it's just something, huh, that's strange, I guess. But he, he's kind of talking about very relevant stuff Yeah. to, to people of our proclivities. Well, yeah, I think that there's a lot of, um, I don't know, people only think about him in terms of like UFOs and some people are turned off by the whole thing because of stuff like ancient aliens and everything, which is hilarious and I love it. Don't at me. Don't come at me for that, everybody. <laughs> it's very funny, but it's obviously like, I mean, I'm not sure if it's doing any favors to the field at all. No, no, it's not. Not really. <laughs> There's an there's a funny thing in, in Satsamabi about that, right? Where he's like, it's it's funny that science refuses or scientists refuse to like investigate these things with the scientific method because you'll get like laughed out of academia, basically. But then they're like turn around and they're like, We don't have any scientific evidence and, and Ramsey Dukes is like, Well that's because you're not looking for it. <laughs> Yeah, no, it is entirely correct. There, the the moment you start to realize that the foundations on uh, from basically you can start with uh, Rene Descartes to splitting mind from matter to uh, the people that came after him, who were who were much worse at him at trying to separate mind from matter, all the way through Enlightenment rationality and rationalism, straight through to the Industrial Revolution to Victorian England, which basically set a template for the next 150 years. We're still going through it is that when you realize that the foundations that exist up to this point specifically in a place like the west is that science is based more on what it excludes from its model than what it includes we'd like mm -hmm. to think that it's given us so much technology and all of this great stuff but it's more about what it doesn't fit in the model and just completely ignoring that and uh, once you start to realize that that's really not because that goes back to what i was saying earlier about my fear of everybody thinking that i was a rational reasonable person in a way that is engaging within the kind of uh, reason and rationality that I want to have in my life, because that is asking more questions, which is the major thing that science gave us. That is the greatest boon that we have ever gotten from enlightenment thinking, is this inquiry, not so much the seeking of results or explanation or uh, evidence, but more so just being able to look at the good unknowns, the big questions. I mm -hmm. believe it was, I, I don't know if it was Charles Fort who said it, but he basically said that uh, great science doesn't begin with an eureka, it begins with a, huh, that's strange. Yes, very well put. Yes. <laughs> this reminds me of a Futurama episode where they discover like 
it's they discover like the fundamental particle of reality or something that answers all of the, the big questions and the professor becomes more and more depressed because there's there's no point to anything anymore <laughs> so yeah I, f- I forget who it was that basically said and I believe it was in one of it was probably in caretakers of the cosmos by gary lockman we're a scientist who basically says that seemingly the more we understand of the universe the more we are distanced from absolutely everything the more alone we truly become which is a strange strange things and even people like william james who's a huge hero of mine has said the very same thing it's, it's a kind of a dissonance of the more that we learn and the more that we know, the less human we become, strangely enough. Yeah, that's very fascinating. Kind of like Faustian overtones, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know if there's an, an end point to rationalism. It, with problems with things like Fraser's The Golden Bough and Structures of Scientific Revolutions by Thomas Kuhn is that they think that the end point is science, or at least in in Thomas Kuhn's sense, he just thinks that it's only science that has the paradigms. Uh, I, I tend to think that no, uh, there's going to be paradigms of an epistemological and an ontological value after that, where we get away with how we uh, validate and uh, claim what is true in the world. And so hopefully the next step is, is one of experience more so than one of evidence. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, the structure of scientific evolutions is a book that my roommate, uh, the, the the house that I currently live in, he said it was. I asked him, "What's what's what book do you think that I need to read?" He said, "The book that changed my life more than any other was the structure of scientific revolutions." So I got it. I immediately bought it and I read it and I, I kind of understood it the first time and then the second time I got it. But there was still something that really, really uh, didn't sit well with me and just the fact that it's it's only science that is allowed paradigms. And I'm I know I will have people crawling up my ass for saying so. I was like, well. He doesn't say that specifically, but that's really what I got from the book. And uh, I don't think it. I don't think it ends with science. I don't. I don't think science is the true arbiter of of truth, and or ever will be. It's just something that we're doing right now that's very beneficial to us in every way, shape, or form. If somebody, you can't be anti-science and an occultist. You really cannot. Yeah, that's just silly. <laughs> Like it, it, I don't get it, but you have to understand the limitations of such a model, and the limitations are basically that hmm, all these things that we consider true are mainly only apprehended through sense data, but somehow we think that they're true, and even beyond that is that the, uh, the thing that we like to call reason is a strange beast as well, because for reason to be the truest thing in the universe it means that it has to come from a place of a transcendent value how how do you measure how that's true is it just seems right is it merely because it's only based off of sense data that's that's, <laughs> that, that's it so you really have to say well what is reason and where does it come from and that's a lot of things that i don't think people that are involved in scientists or rationalist thinkers really do well they just get mad and they say oh fucking kantians and then they don't want to talk yeah, about it yeah, yeah pretty much <laughs> i'm actually poking fun at my brother um, emmanuel kant's a strange strange bird yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah i wonder like i was kind of thinking about what you were saying about like this kind of idea of especially in the enlightenment like these maybe occultists assuming that like one day science will you know all of this stuff will be understood by science and all of our uh theories will be like kind of validated in this way yeah i wonder if like what they were really going for it wasn't that it was science it was that they like maybe wanted mainstream validation in whatever way that looked like at the time Mm -hmm. 
So, and but, but now it, it is science. Now science is, it's because I think it's misunderstood by a lot of people. It's treated as a little bit more of a religion than a tool set, which is what it is. Right. So, yeah, I, I, I bitch about this on the show all the time, so I won't do it right now. No, no, it's, no, it's all good. It's just, it's coming to a realization and an understanding that although it does provide us a lot of answers and a lot of comfort, it just can't understand everything because a lot of what it needs to include in its model for it to progress are things that it excludes right off the get-go. Yeah, and it's not and it's it's also not for that. It's also like it wasn't ever supposed to like be a belief system, you know? Right? It's supposed to be a tool set. So, uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I hear you. I get the frustration as well. Yeah. All right. If you're on a the proverbial desert island, which three books are you taking with you and why? So of all the questions, besides the uh, what would you tell your past self, I had the most trouble with this one, obviously. Uh, um, there's one that I, from the very beginning, I, I have to include, and that would be Herman Melville's Moby Dick. I think it is such a wonderful book. The, the language in it is so beautiful. It's a rip-roaring tale. The characters are so wonderful. Uh, I just, I could read that book for for days. It, I never tire of it. And it it's strange. I think somebody recently posted, I believe it was like Matt Tiabi uh, on Twitter, that it's the book where the last six months, a lot of writers have been saying, I've never read Moby Dick, which 20 years ago, because I'm old enough to remember, uh, it was writers saying that I've never read Don Quixote. So I guess it's fashionable now to not to say that you haven't read Moby Dick. It's weird that just as an aside, like I always think it's weird when people brag about not having read something. <laughs> just saying. I've never read um, Marcel Proust's uh, La Recherche de Tom Perdu. It's like, well, that's that's not a good thing. It's actually a really good book. You should yeah, probably read it. Yeah, that's fucking good shit. <laughs> yeah, but uh, as far as yeah, as far as Moby Dick and. It's just a fantastic book. I love absolutely everything, everything about it. Um, I had the second one, because there's so many books. There really is. The second one would be probably Edith Hamilton's Mythology, which just goes through ancient Greek myths. And it's probably the best book to, to get ancient Greek myths. Again, my father was hugely, he would tell us stories about ancient Greece, and not just the stories of people that were historical figures, but the mythology itself. And I find the characters so utterly human and weird and devastatingly, tragically strange. All the decisions they make are unreal and they act the way that gods act. And so I think that with that book, specifically if I was in a bunker or a desert island, it would really allow me to read a couple of stories, and not just see them in my mind, but be able to create my own stories in my head uh, if I had a lot of alone time. Because they're seemingly timeless like they they are such a deep structure i know we can throw around words like archetypes and body blah but they're so easily themselves and wonderful in that respect that i think that it's and doing the um i did an episode on ancient greek magic so i had to pull out my copy of, of mythology and just flip through it again we all know the stories but man they're so good they're just wonderful so that would be book number two the third book, which was really rough, but uh, I, a bit of a, a bit of a nostalgic pick, but also a bit of a pick of uh, a book where I really enjoy the characters. Uh, it would be if I could cheat 
because you can buy them in one volume, I believe. Um, <laughs> I'll allow it. <laughs> thank you. Is um, is Neil Gaiman's Sandman? I love the characters of the Endless. I think that uh, the this they all begin all their names begin with the letter D. I believe Dream, Delirium, Destiny, Destruction, Desire, Despair, and uh, the other one. I totally forget what the other one is. Uh, kick me. But uh, the it has everything that I want. It's got uh, it's got ancient myths from around the world told in a new way. It has dreams in there. It's a story about storytelling. It is a story about all the things that are very important to magicians, I believe. And uh, not just that, it has uh, a wonderful message, which is you either change or you die, which I think is incredibly important for not just living your life, but magic itself, you, you change or you die. A lot of people are very comfortable with whatever niche they have in magic, and I, I get it because that's it's, it's a tough world out there. But I for, when I'm in a rut is used magically and things aren't going well, I will switch things up and I will try something new. But Neil Gaiman's Sandman is just such a wonderful bastion of, of great literature. It's definitely locked into a certain time frame, late 80s uh, to mid 90s. But I still think that all of the characters in them are just wonderful. Uh, Shakespeare's in there. I have a great love of Shakespeare. Greek myths are in there. Arabic myths are in there. Aboriginal and First Nation myths are in there. It's just, it's all in there. And it's everything that I truly love about storytelling in one volume. But so those are three. But I mean, uh, Gary Luckman's Caretakers of the Cosmos could be in there. Um, geez. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> this, oh, sorry, but I, I really had a strong Philip Larkin's uh, the twentieth the, the the book of twentieth century English verse, which is just poetry. The complete works of William Blake. Anyways, it's I could forget. Yeah, uh, there's too many books, but I'm solid. I'm solid with those three: Moby Dick, mythology, and the Sandman. Those are those are my three solid solid picks. All right, hell yeah. Well, that, those sound like excellent picks. And if you and if you haven't read them. Uh, Trust me, you need to. Specifically, mythology. That's it's. They're so enjoyable and just wonderful. Uh, truth be told, this is a little bit of praxis for you. Hey, you want to have some dreams? Uh, read Greek myths. Trust me on that. Yeah, you know, actually, I think that my brother Asher talks about reading Gibbon um, on, like, you know, the history of Rome before going to bed and kind of like dreaming about this stuff too. So that's a, that's a really cool tip for people i have also done that too and i have found it to be effective very effective yeah the st stories are somebody recently on twitter basically said they, they were i don't want to again i don't want to pump my own tires but they they said they've only been doing magic for about six months and uh and my episode on spells in which i talk about a spell basically being a story was very instrumental in how they uh, started their practice of magic but I stand by that. Spells are stories, and the universe seems to run on a story or narrative-based function. Um, we constantly talk about such things like truth is stranger than fiction and, and, and whatnot, but I, I truly think that the universe is one giant story, and it responds to stories, and we dream stories into existence. And uh, e even for things like, like, to go back to Sandman, the idea of before, they were there was a couple and they had a small cat and the the, the cat decided to sleep and while it, it had a dream and a 
larger cat was telling the story of how things existed for the world of cats. Cats were larger than human beings. In fact, they ate human beings until the human beings decided that they would, could be larger than the cats. In fact, that they, the cats would be a small animal and they would be pets. And all it took for the human beings to do was to dream it into reality. And so the, this one cat said, we have to get things back to where they are. And how, and how do we do this? Asked the other cats. The cat says, we have to dream it. We have to do the dream again to get back to where we were. And then it goes back to the couple and uh, they're just looking at their, their new kitten, which is dreaming and it's, it's twitching in its dream. And, and the, the couple just says, you know, oh, what do you think that that cat's dreaming about? It's, oh, it's probably dreaming about hunting a mouse. So, <laughs> so it's, no, it's, that's it's, fucking dope, dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you have not read Sad Man, it's just such a wonderful, wonderful book. But uh, stories are so instrumental to absolutely everything. I mean, I believe it is a Zuni uh, phrase that, that says that there is no truth. There are only stories, and which is such a simple statement. But it is so devastatingly true. Yeah, fuck yeah. Okay, well, I'm glad that you brought that shit up because I was going to ask you, um, just as an aside, and I might cut this out, I don't know, <laughs> I did want to ask okay. you, um, did you read Weaving Fate by Aiden Wachter yet? I did, yes. Actually, Aiden was ki kind enough to give me an advanced copy of it uh, before I interviewed him Hell on, yeah. on, my, on my show. And, yep. Yeah, Absolutely. I just finished it. I've uh, got my black book all ready to go and everything. And um, I've tried hyper sigils before, but I haven't tried this specific method before. And I'm really looking forward to it. So, yeah, the the, the method for those who haven't read it yet, uh, the method is incredibly interesting. And truthfully, uh, it's not like I arrived at it before Aiden did. There's none of that. But uh, when you write journals, and specifically with things like dream journals or just a daily magical journal, when you start writing your not just things like affirmations, but and things like, I hope that this thing happens, write them as if they've already happened. Uh, write them as though they are reality themselves. And you'll slowly start to see that mm, things start to happen. Yeah, definitely. And Aiden's other book, Six Ways, is, uh, and I was saying this to Aiden before I turned the microphone off, because beforehand when somebody would ask me, you know, like, how do I start in practical magic? Uh, I told uh, i would have to tell these people like well you have to read this part from this book and then this part from this book and then read all of this book and then this from here because nobody really has written down the things that i would consider like not proper but um, effective and uh, i guess effective and results-based magic in one place and then suddenly six ways came along and it's like finally i have a book where i can just say read this one book Meditations in there, sigils are in there, uh, all of the good stuff is in there, and uh, I, I love, I absolutely love that book. So, as weaving fate, you can read without having read Six Ways first. But uh, if you really want to get to the nitty gritty of practical magic, accept no substitute. Aiden's book is really the best. Yeah, you know, I haven't, I actually haven't read Six Ways yet, but when I read Weaving Fate, like there was like a bunch of stuff in there that it was like, well, yeah, this is just what you do, but like. I mean, from from the standpoint of somebody that me like me that likes to work that way, I'm not super into like a lot of like structure and rules and stuff. I know some people super are you rebel you, but but it's, well, some people like I feel like they kind of like there there's a certain amount of comfort that I think that that can provide to people, and that's there's nothing wrong with that. You know, if that's how you work, that's how you work. And but yeah, if you're if you're somebody that kind of just likes to, I don't know, go with the flow and kind of feel shit out, then it seems like he's kind of on that beat. Well, he's sharing, right? So he, 
the models that he uses with things, if, and if you read Six Ways, you'll know. He talks about something called the field, and he talks about his allies. Uh, those are just the models that he uses. For, for somebody uh, looking back at magic, as I have when I first read Six Ways, uh, it's more of a, a kick in the pants to say, like, this is, this is good because he's just sharing what works for him. Figure it out for yourself. So he's, he's got his system, in, in a way, out there for you to basically say, and you don't have to accept it as, as fact, but the tools that he uses and the words that he uses are very, very helpful, truthfully. But don't take everything for Aiden's words, but look at the, look at the techniques and the process. That's the most important part. Uh, yeah, oh, have, definitely. And that yeah. goes with, with any author, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. I hope, because, well, when people start magic, they, they like to think that there is, again, to go back to the Egypt thing, that there has been this way that magic has been practiced since 300 BC, or sorry, 3000 BC, and that is totally incorrect. And to people say, well, Doug, how do I get initiated in magic? It's like, fuck, you're initiated already, dude. Just call yourself a magician and go for it. Like, you don't have to, this, all of this strange idea that there's only one way to do magic is so wrong. It's, it's funny, but uh, I understand why people think, because it's, it's what's being sold. People are being sold an ad campaign for a certain kind of magic, and that is the magic that is most popular right now. Is is this Golden Dawn Lodge based group magic uh, nonsense, basically? But yeah, it's popular and it sells, and it'll go up on certain uh, animated TV shows, um, and there. Twitter is a light for days about wow people talking about magic, and look at this new book that came out. And, uh, Alistair Crowley is the best all of this stuff. And I just, and I just go, ah, and, and their argument would be, well, it's popular. So it must be true. And somebody's asking me, um, you know, for a good meal, uh, McDonald's is the most popular restaurant in the world, but if they want a good meal, I'm not sending them to the golden arches, right? Like I, I'm, I'm going to give them something that's, <laughs> that's brutal, it's, but fucking good. <laughs> yeah. Like it's so, um, yeah, there is no structure, but, and it, you are right. It goes for any kind of book that you read. You don't have to accept the worldview, but look at a lot of the techniques. Certainly six ways is one of the, is, is the best out there in my opinion right now. I have, I have yet to encounter one book that has pretty much everything in there. Jason Miller's work, uh, the Sorcerer's Secrets is very good as well. Uh, but all of those books are in the back of six ways, which, uh, suggested reading. The suggested reading in that book and in Gordon White's Pieces of Eight are basically almost all you need to start uh, your your journey those those two books and the suggested reading in the back you're on your way if, if you have those two okay yeah hell yeah well those are good tips for sure i, I haven't read six ways yet like i said but i'm definitely it's definitely like on the list you know <laughs> Got, gotta read it gotta read it for sure you'll, you'll love it Tr you'll love it trust me I, I see what work you do in uh on instagram and it's it's right it'll be right up your ass. oh yeah no i'm stoked i actually yeah i've been kind of following him now and because I'm very curious. After reading the book, I was like, "Holy shit! Like, why how have I not heard of this guy before?" So, well, it came out of the blue for me as well. He's been doing magic for such a long period of time. I remember once when we were having a conversation on Twitter, just his his magical heritage, and he just started talking and telling all these stories about like Genesis Peorage and all of these people that he was involved in. He's like, "Like, where did this guy come from? Like, did he just..." 
drop out of space and just decided that <laughs> now is when he wants to share his, his knowledge. But guess what? He, he's worked for his magic. He really has uh, more so than a lot of people selling a lot of books these days. So I'm, I can, I can only suggest his books as much as I do and really say that he knows what he's talking about. If you spend any time talking to him or interacting with him online, trust me, he knows what he's talking about. Oh yeah. I mean, just reading the book, it was like, there was nothing in there that I, that, struck a, a like a, a dissonant chord with me it was all like but again that could just be a, my own personal flavor but yeah i would recommend um certainly weaving fate if you are interested in learning about hyper sigils like it's uh it's very cool very accessible um yeah just good stuff for sure absolutely i agree okay well now that we're done <laughs> with our aided walker fan club Okay. Where's my where's my check, Aiden? I'm still waiting for it. <laughs> um, okay, so I was going to ask you: Is there a particular topic or topics in the area of occultism, magic, or whatever you want to call it um, that you feel are particularly misrepresented or misunderstood? And anything you'd like to maybe set the record straight on? Um, mainly just what I talked about earlier. Um, I'll, I'll try to come to the conclusion here as, as, as we began. So get, get the history of magic right it is very important. As much as I like the going off of things that are very patently untrue, the history of magic is an, an incredible story. And uh, specifically when you strip away what I consider the, the nonsense of magic, again, this whole lodge-based, we hold the secret and only we know the secret kind of magic, uh, once you strip that away, a lot of people will be like, oh, well, then there's no history of magic. And you say, no, no, the, the history of magic is right beside it. And it's actually far more interesting and far more cool than even you could imagine. Uh, it's just that a lot of the books, there really isn't one book that that has a good history of magic in it. You have to go to a ton of sources. Um, you have to go to the Penn State University Press. They have a, a collection of books called uh, Magic and History. You have to go to... Um, Brill sometimes, you know, and they're expensive books. They're not cheap. But uh, the, the worst place that you can go to for a history of magic uh, are other magicians. They, the books that they write are mainly ones of this nonsense history. And, uh, and it's a lovely one. Again, it's very popular. But uh, there's very few magicians who will talk about the history of magic who I actually say that they know what they're talking about. Guys like Stephen Skinner, maybe one of the best. If you want a history of Western magic, get his techniques of Greco-Egyptian magic, get his techniques of Solomonic magic, and get the Goetia of Dr. Rudd. Like that's, that's maybe almost as close as you can get in three books, a history of uh, European or Western magic. It's, it's right there in those books. Jake Stratton Kent's Geosophia, uh, reading that for the first time was a world shaker for me. It's so unbelievably great. Uh, it's a hard read if you're not familiar with a lot of the things that he's talking about, grimoires and uh, and the Goetia or even Greek history. But uh, hang in there. It's it's really quite uh, wonderful. It's, it's in a way it's circuitous in how it gets to about the the history of the occult. But it's once you get there, it's really quite wonderful. But uh, don't accept anybody's history of the occult. Very important and. Uh, once, once you strip away the veneer and see that a lot of what is passed for as being magic is just an ad campaign for some 
strange idea that uh, his magic has been done one way throughout all of history, and it came from the Egyptians. It's yes, it did come from the Egyptians, but not in the way that you think, uh, <laughs> and and actually in a far more cool way. And oh my goodness, it's mind blowing when you finally realize it. Um, that's that's the one thing. So, and I know I keep ragging on it, and I just I just keep going. But uh, and of course, history has has purposes. And it's. It, the people that write it always all have things, but I, I find that when you start to put it together, and it is it, it is a chore. There is no one book that I would suggest for a history of magic uh, that things start to make sense a little bit, and you'll see the reasons why certain magic was done at certain periods of time, and how there was transformations of, of magic through time. Wonderful history. Again, it's it's fifty times more interesting than what's currently being offered as a history of magic, which is pretty much everything that they're going to come in contact to for a cheap price in any occult bookstore. So that's the main one. Just go to history. It's really, <laughs> it's really, really uh, needed for you to, to try and learn magic. And, uh, and because it's story-based again, it's the, it's the story of us through time is, is history. And it's really quite wonderful. So that's, that's the main one. And in my podcast, I constantly talk about get the history right this, this is it but uh, that's yeah that's it so speaking of this dude when are you gonna write a book oh my god uh, I, i'm not good at sitting so uh if if there could be one of those things where i strap a tape recorder to my chest and just walk around <laughs> with a microphone and then pass it off to somebody for them to write a book maybe i see it happening but seeing myself sitting down in front of a computer uh, for six to eight hours a day typing something i, I don't know if that's ever going to happen i'm as much as I love books, I don't really don't see myself writing one anytime soon. Uh, and there's ideas kicking around as if I had a book, if somebody gave me a couple of thousand dollars, uh, a couple of $10,000, just put it that way, uh, to, to write a book. I, I don't really know what I would write a book on. Uh, but uh, who knows? Never say never. But uh, as far as sitting down and writing something, it's it's tough for me. Somebody asked me earlier today, uh, on my Patreon, which is a thing I just launched a couple of weeks ago. We're ha already having a great time. Uh, they wanted to know uh, today, they wanted to know, can you let us in a little bit on how you research and formulate your shows? And I just basically said, it's a bit maddening because uh, it's not really what people think. I, I've, I read a lot, probably to an unhealthy degree, and I also have an extraordinary memory. So I can almost remember almost everything that I've read. And that, that does sound like a little bit like Doug, like fuck off. But, but, uh, so when an ep when I get, when a topic for an episode comes up, I, I sit there for a little bit and I, I really just let, you could call them spirits. You can call it my consciousness. You can call it my memory. You can call it any kind of model. I don't question it. I just notice the phenomenon and the books that I need to go through and the ideas that I need to go into for the episode, they just come to me. And then I, I literally pace my apartment. I live alone, thankfully, in a, in a somewhat large apartment for downtown Toronto. And I, it's, it's kind of, if somebody was to set up a camera, they'd ask like, what's wrong with this person? But I will sit down for two seconds, then I'll stand up and then I'll go walk to the bookshelf. I'll pull a book down and then I will put it back. And then I, it's, it's some strange, chaotic influence that just takes me uh, takes uh, over all all of me, and I just go with it. And so far, it's put me in good stead. So, yeah, that's that's really one of those things that I uh, I think that uh, that's more conducive to how I come at a formulation of 
of a artistic product. As far as sitting down and writing a book, man, that would be that would be almost torturous for me. But again, never say never. Okay. Well, I mean, process is process. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think one of my favorite things that uh, was involving a process was a guy called uh, Bob Zamuda, and he was a friend of Andy Kaufman. And uh, before Bob Zamuda ever met Andy Kaufman, he had a job following around a person who was a screenwriter who had won many, many Academy Awards. And while Bob Zamuda was writing this book, which was an autobiography of Andy Kaufman, uh, he said that uh, the process was, was literally this guy paid in cash and he paid thousands of dollars. But what you had to do is that you had to have a tape recorder and two microphones strapped to your body. And then you just followed this, this screenwriter around town. And this screenwriter would literally get his inspiration from getting into fights and arguing with people. And Bob Samuda's job was to just follow this guy around and get into crazy situations. Oh, oh, and also carry a briefcase full of money. So when shit got so real, he would just be able to throw money at these people that the screenwriter was fighting and pay them off. Uh, So That's fucking wild. Yeah, so... If, if I was to write a book, it would literally be me strapping a tape recorder to myself and wandering around town and just everything that's going through my mind of just talking into a tape recorder and then passing it off for somebody to put into a book and then passing that <laughs> off to, a, to, a, to, a, to an editor and then they make something out of it. But yeah, the, the whole process of writing a book to me seems very uh, unappealing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, unless one took an incredibly unconventional approach, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, so. <laughs> one of my favorite stories, and it's totally true. And somebody, somebody recently found out what uh, screenwriter uh, Bob Zamuda. He, he said that enough time had passed since this uh, screenwriter had passed away that he was okay with revealing the name. And I think he wrote things like Kramer versus Kramer, or uh, anyways. But yeah, he would he would get into fights and then just have uh, an assistant, which was Bob Zamuda, follow him around with a tape recorder, <laughs> and uh, and then that would get put into the script. And that's how that's how this guy uh, came at inspiration. So I like this guy. I mean, he sounds like a giant asshole, but I like the way that this guy does things. Yes. Well, the Discordian streak can be appreciated. Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> you think about it. But just the idea, though, is that once once shit gets far too real, that Bob Zamuda just opens up a briefcase <laughs> and hands hands a couple thousand dollars to uh, to somebody to make them go away or, or calm down. I just, yeah, I just, so, lo- I I mean, just love that. I love that too. It's almost like a shitty Santa Claus shows up and like gives gets in a fight with you and then gives you some money. <laughs> ruins ruins everybody's day. Says horribly racist, homophobic things just to rile people up, and then uh, and then you get some money for it. So there you go. Oh man. Okay, so you had said something that I really liked before, sort of about your general approach that you had recommended people do. I'm sure if you've looked at my Instagram account, that people know that I like to combine like a lot of like food into like some of the stuff I work. You know, that the idea of like these kind of primitive instincts being really powerful, I think, is definitely a thing. Um, so, and you had said something about this book of like, it was like a cooking book about how different flavors could combine. Yeah. It's called the flavor Bible. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about how that relates to like, I don't know, sort of how you see your approach to magic? So specifically when I want to start coming up with spells, um, or rituals and, and whatnot, it's, it's, it's fun to go entirely by the book. Uh, sorry. 
it's okay to go entirely by the book, but I've always found great rewards at uh, switching things up and uh, maybe not taking out some of the larger elements, but uh, swapping things with what you have at the time. Uh, I know a lot of people, when they get something like a grimoire, it'll have crazy things in there like the, the skin of a cat or something like that. Um, sometimes you gotta get the skin of a cat. If you're working the Grand Grimoire, sometimes you have to kill a goat. Uh, but some of the spells and rituals that I use from, from guidebooks, specifically something like the Greek Magical Papyri, which is very, very uh, purposeful for me. I connect with that magic very much. You have things in there that you can tinker with in, in a way. So this cookbook is, is quite great because it will go through some of the ingredients that go well with other ingredients. Uh, so if you say you have something like tomatoes, it goes really good with basil, and it goes really good with uh, cheese, salt, pepper, that kind of thing. So when I'm reading certain spells uh, in something, say, like the Greek magical papyri, they'll say something like, uh, you know, you have to have uh, the skin of a, or sorry, the blood of a snake. Uh, but uh, elsewhere, you'll find in certain uh, grimoires, or even in the PGM itself, uh, the blood of a snake is, I believe... Uh, hematite or hematite. Uh, so that's a stone that you can use. So you can involve that or bring that into what you're doing as a ritual. So uh, the protocols for certain ways of doing spells, they're, they're not contained as much as we'd like to think. So there is room for improving or spicing it up, to, to use the word, to spice things up in a way. And I've, I've found great rewards in a lot of times going off of the book. And the reason that I think that this cookbook, the Flavor Bible, is such an important one is because if you have a couple of the basics down as to how to cook, so you know how to boil an egg, you know how to braise a piece of beef, uh, you know how to pan fry something, if you have a lot of those basics down, uh, same thing goes for magic. If you have a lot of the basics for how to invoke spirits or evoke spirits or scrying or something like that, if you have that basic skills down, I, the world is literally open to you into how you can utilize certain techniques of, of magic uh, in a way that uh, creating your own dish just from scratch and, and not going off of a, I add two teaspoons of this to, and I add this much water, uh, you really get a sense of, of how magic was done in the past. And because specifically in things like the Greek magical papyri, they say, this spell worked like six times. So that's like a little workbook for them. So you, you actually have an active workbook. Uh, so you take that idea that, that the, the Theban sorcerer who came up with a lot of the Greek magical papyri, uh, you take that to, to heart and realize that he's working through things. Nothing is set in stone. And the more you realize that you ha can adapt and bring certain elements in, uh, the better. But I mean, mix, as far as the mixing traditions, uh, that's something that you don't really want to do. I don't know if you're old enough to remember when there was a huge period of time in the 90s where there would be fusion restaurants where, and they didn't last a very long time for a good reason, where it would be, come to our restaurant, we're making Greek and uh, Mexican food together on one plate. <laughs> I mean, um, yeah, and that works well for some flavor palettes that have a lot of things in common, but then other times it's like, wait, what are you doing now? <laughs> Similarity does not mean the same, and yeah. we have to realize this. And but so, so working outside of a lot of traditions and just bringing in a whole bunch of, in an appropriative way, bringing in a whole bunch of different cultures to try and come up with a spell. Try to stay away from that. These these traditions they require a great deal of respect and reverence, and there's a reason that a lot of the traditions have been around for as long as they have is because it. 
it works, and it has come through a certain amount of pragmatism, which is why I find a great deal of freedom in the Greek magical papyri and within necromancy as well, because for one, there's no textbook for necromancy. For Greco-Egyptian magic, we have certain things like the Greek magical papyri and whatnot, but you can go off of a lot of what is written there uh, that is very conducive to you doing magic. So I come from it uh, just in a, in a way, specifically with something like the Flavor Bible, is that uh, there's certain things you can swap out. Say you're making a curry. Well, you don't have any uh, coconut milk? Throw some buttermilk in there. Guess what? It works. It might even be tastier than uh, the other one. But uh, don't be swapping the uh, the chicken for, I don't know. Um, or like awesome. the curry powder oh, for something yeah, else. You yeah, know? <laughs> don't, don't, don't. Yeah, a curry is not a curry unless you're actually using fucking curry powder, right? <laughs> totally. So, good, good example, actually. That's a very good one. So. Uh, no, that's that's basically it. Um, just there are as long as you have the base techniques down, you got that. The world is so open to you and how you conduct magic, and that really has been the magical tradition more than anything. We can see deep structures when you look at things like the grimoires, straight from the Greek magical papyri. You see certain things being done specifically with scrying uh, that go straight through grimoires, um, and Jake Stratton Kent's work is really great for this because and Stephen Skinner because you can see this happening but you also see that they're tinkering and they're working and they're adding things uh, they're not changing uh, the 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 overall structure of what they want to accomplish but they are working through things and that is in a nutshell the western magical tradition it's right there this ability to be able to work on your own that's it all right hell yeah dude okay so are there any other things that you would like me or the listeners to know that I did not ask about. Uh, no, just if, if I can get up on a soapbox, be kind to yourself. Um, specifically these days, I know a lot of people in the world right now, people are hurting uh, and they are seeing that things are getting worse. But I just say, just be kind to yourself. Don't beat yourself up if something doesn't work as far as magic concerns. Be, don't beat yourself up if, if things are looking incredibly bad right now. More than anything, uh, the best way of, of doing magic is coming from a place of invincibility and just knowing somehow that you are invincible in what you do. Be confident in, in what you do because uh, the magic will follow. But uh, more than anything, just be kind. Just be kind to yourself. Be kind to others. And uh, yeah, just start to start to see when, uh, when that little time magic uh, starts to slip in there because it will. All right, dude. Hell yeah. Well, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for being on my show. Thank you. I'm quite looking forward to this and uh, I'm quite looking forward to what you do with the, the podcast. It's It's been so fantastic. And thank you so much for reaching out to me. It's it's really quite wonderful. Again, I could talk about this kind of stuff for hours and uh, you've been very, very kind. I, I'm, I know it's been a while since you first contacted me, but uh, I was really looking forward to this. And, uh, oh, yeah. No, me so too. Fun. And I hope to talk to you more in the future. Absolutely, anytime. No, it's it's been an absolute pleasure. Just put a microphone on me, and then I'll I'll, I'll talk for hours. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Fuck yeah, man. <laughs> Wonderful, and good luck with this podcast. I'm I'm really excited to see where it goes. And, uh, yes, yeah, thank you so much. And everybody, please don't forget to check out Doug's show, the What Magic Is This podcast. It's chock full of all kinds of great information and a lot of insight and just a lot of like cool tidbits and shit. So definitely check it out. Yeah, please. I think it's pretty good. Myself. I, I agree. <laughs> All right. Thank you again so much to Douglas. Dude, 
I'm a little annoyed that you're not going to be writing a book about the history of magic anytime soon, but I will live with that. On the topic of flavors and magic, here is a fun thing that y'all could try. You could devise a recipe that is also a ritual. Pretty much every ingredient that we use in cooking has some folklore attached to it. And this is especially true of things like herbs and flowers, some of which are edible, obviously double check on that, but um, there are many that are. Uh, most things that we eat have an incredibly rich and interesting history too, which could definitely be worth exploring, even if it's just in terms of like approaching them in a mindful way. Uh, so what might this look like? Maybe you want to like do a wealth ritual. This could incorporate mixing things like allspice or cinnamon or other stuff into maybe like some coffee or some other beverage you associate with wealth in your mind. Um, you could stir it a certain number of times in a certain direction. I mean, there's infinite things that you could do here. The dishes or the silverware that you use, the color of the napkin, all this stuff can play a role. So play around with it and let me know what you come up with. Uh, you can check out some of my weird experiments with visual art and magic and food and stuff uh, on Instagram at the Mimetic Disease and read the protocol I wrote for making the sigils and stuff that I use with it. All right, so here is an update on what I have been up to. Um, I've been doing some work recently with this really cool and interesting system called Ankh or Chaos Kabbalah or Pseudo Kabbalah. Ankh stands for Ankh is not Kabbalah. Uh, with the person who created it, Mia Ain. So what's up? Shout out to you. Uh, anyway, it's a system of organization like Kabbalah, but approached from the perspective of like, I don't know, organic emergence. Um, instead of a fixed tree, there is a series of trees which represent the process of manifestation, like a process tree. Uh, there's going to be a link in the description. Definitely check it out. It's hella dope. For me, it ties a lot of concepts together that I've been thinking about for a really long time, but never had the structure to place them in. And whenever I attempted to communicate these ideas to people, my efforts were typically met with blank stares and condescension. So I'm pretty fucking stoked to be working on this shit. Uh, right now, we're in the process of like working the paths and then seeing how they relate to one another in terms of like how they emerged, taking an experiential approach like we talked about today. So I'm hoping to do a whole episode about this stuff coming up here. It's super interesting, and I've already gained a lot of insight from thinking about it and stuff. All right, so here's a slight correction. Uh, the stuff that Tophi, this the Temple of Psychic Use, got up to with the sigils of three liquids could totally be considered a hyper-sigil. But it just wasn't labeled as that at its inception because the term hadn't been coined yet. Okay, so I put in a link to an intro to Tophi in case anybody's curious. Uh, so yeah, thank you for pointing that out to me, Ayn, and thank you so much for including me in the Ankh project. I really like working with you. Uh, you pointed something important out to me that I think somebody might have tried to make me forget recently, so thank you. So there's a lot of, I don't know, anger and fear and hate and stuff that seems to be uh, permeating the etheric atmosphere lately. I mean, there's just been so much shit so fucking quick with so little time to process it. We need to do some work to repair the cracks and the foundations of our relationships with like the people around us and do this as, at a larger scale as a society. And we need to find a way to have more empathy, which is understanding other people's perspectives, and more compassion, which is actually giving a fuck. So I want to thank Douglas for bringing up the importance of kindness and also for showing some fucking optimism. The importance of morale cannot be overstated. Things have been rough, but they'll get better. We need to remember what he said in the interview about reality functioning like a sort of story. 
let's tell better stories to ourselves and to each other. Stories about the type of future we want to make. So with that kind of idea in mind, uh, I mean, some other people are going to be initializing a project on the 31st of October that, among other things, is intended to create a sort of reservoir of green magic upon which people can draw to, I don't know, work acts of kindness and healing and shit and basically help keep morale up. Uh, this is going to be an ongoing thing, and as far as I see it, the more people who are working with the sigil, the better. Um, so in Liber Chaos, Carol points out that for whatever reason, like I'm guessing social conditioning or whatever, men or males or like masculine people seem to have like an aversion to like some aspects of green magic. But so to the people that are feeling that way, like, Ugh, I don't know, gross or whatever, like, just hear me out for a second. Like, um, deities of love also rule in the domain of war. And this is because what do you think it is that gives us the will to fight? So this project is a way that we can fight back, even if it seems like it's just the contrary. But trust me, I've done my fucking research on this shit, and the theory is actually already tested. Plus, I know my shit. I've been doing magic for most of my fucking life. So, yes. The symbolic representation of this is going to be a green mushroom. Fungal spores can remain airborne until floating down to propagate even in putrid conditions, seemingly turning rot into new life. Fungal networks help sustain many forests, doing their work in unseen interactions which take place below the surface of the ground. The mushroom is also a sacred teacher. Plus, I'm pretty sure there's a dick joke in there somewhere too. So I'm putting together a little mini episode which will explain a bit more of the theory um, and have the sigil and contain like a guided meditation for people if they want to use it. Um, I'm hoping to get that out within the next few days here, so keep a lookout for that. You don't need to use the meditation or whatever to work with the sigil, though. I just thought it might be helpful. But yeah, you ever do your own thing, obviously, whatever works for you. So yeah, if you think that this might be something you're into, participating in some group magic, let's fucking do it. And of course, I want to hear about your experiences. Okay, so if you're into this show, you can thank me by telling a friend and then doing some magic. Maybe you and your friend can do some magic together. That'd be cool. Uh, and if you like, you can tell me about it. Uh, you can email me at luxocultpod at gmail.com. You can join the Luxacult Facebook group and follow me on Instagram at The Mimetic Disease. There's also a Instagram for the show, Luxacult Pod. Uh, check out Ankh, and don't forget to listen to What Magic Is This? You're going to learn a ton from Douglas. He's hella cool and very sweet. Um, he's got some great stuff about the history of chaos magic. Um, he's just released an episode about drugs and magic, speaking of mushrooms. So that's cool. Okay, so here's a sort of open secret about magic. One of the easiest ways to make shit happen is to sort of pretend like it already did, like forgetting, not lusting for results, kind of in that vein or whatever. We've talked about this shit at length. Um, one of the ways to get into this sort of mindset is by expressing gratitude. There can be a lot of cool stuff about working with deities, and in my opinion, this is one benefit of doing that that tends to be overlooked. Alright, on that note, here are some quasi-religious writings. Speak to me in symbols, Lord of the First Flame. I have opened my eyes and by your grace seen gratitude. Guide me further in this sacred work so that I might work will. Gratitude for the shadows on the walls of the hermit's cave, for the voices in the silence that whispered dead tongues. Gratitude for the bindings that broke and also broke me. Gratitude for the pain and elation of discovery. The fear of seeing clearly that clears like clouds. 
You have shown me my ignorance and shown me the patterns woven through my time. You have shown me, O Lord, my inverse symmetry with my enemy. You have allowed me to gaze into the darkest of my hearts, to be tempted and to be triumphant. Gratitude, Lord of Light, Lord of Dancing Winds, for testing my power and tempering my will. All right, stay curious and take care of yourselves. 